If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. We have so many politicians in town this week. The city of Hamilton thought the access gas was from another sewer leak. Oh, Here, Scott. That's not nice. That's just that's just not nice. It shouldn't. Oh, he gets that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today uh, spinning the Prince. Reason uh, Will is doing such. Uh, number 16. Prince is on the top 200 singers of all time, uh, as reported by Rolling Stone magazine, uh, which we all saw at the beginning of the new year. And we, we aim to burn through as many as we can between here and the end of the month. And if there's still some good ones left, we'll keep going. Uh, anyway, uh, feel free to jump into the fray. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson. 900CHML.com. Of course, a very, very exciting time. Uh, the Prime Minister and Posse in the hammer as we speak. We are the epicenter of the world right now. We are, huh? Okay, Canada. Uh, because everybody's here and all eyes are focused, all news organizations are here. Uh, Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, is speaking right now, uh, live in Hamilton, as they say. So uh, lots going on and lots focused here on the hammer, which is great. And uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Got another, I guess we're about halfway through uh, the Prime Minister's uh, cabinet retreat here in the hammer. All right, uh, lots of other stuff going on, which we want to touch on, uh, and we will later on today. Germany allowing uh, its tanks to help Ukraine. We'll get into that and in, in, in what it's all about. Uh, speaking of the Prime Minister, he said on an election when asked, Canadians don't want to be plunged into an election. Uh, although it was okay during a global pandemic. All right. I don't think anybody wants one either. Just saying. However, I'm not sure, um, I, you know, I, you know, pa- elections are better held during pandemics. Let's be honest here. And of course, the big news, Bo Levi Mitchell is a, a new tie cat in a tie cat quarterback. Is he a quarterback? Is he a country singer? I love that name. We'll talk about that, obviously, uh, coming up, uh, a little later on. All right. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the prime minister is in town. And Rick had an incredible interview this morning with him uh, on Good Morning Hamilton just after the 7.30 news. Uh, But, uh, you know, and I know he's already done one appearance on CHML, but I was hoping he would come on my show. And, uh, of course, it's selfish. And, I've you know, and and I've been having a little contest whether you think he will come on or not. Just simply uh, talk or text 905-645-3221. Yes or no. Send us an email, scottthompson at 900chml.com. Yes or no. And, unfortunately, the nose are winning. So anyway, uh, so yesterday we're, we're chasing the PM. This is what we're doing. We're chasing the PM. This is what we have to do. Uh, we're looking for scraps. And, and uh, you know, yesterday we called the, the Sheridan Hotel, and they were very nice and very gracious to us. And, um, you know, I, I tried to ask if I could please, you know, have a conversation, see if I could get into the speak to the prime minister, maybe give us an interview, that sort of thing. Um, you know, kind of going in the back door, so to speak. And, um, and of course... Uh, no, <laughs> no was the answer. So, um, you know, uh, when you fail, what do you do? You try, try again. So, Will, can you please give us a phone line and an access and get us through on this uh, number that I've given you, please? And uh, shh. Good afternoon, Sir Hamilton. Services. I may help you. Is this the Sheridan Hotel Hamilton? Yes, it is. I was just wondering if you could put me through to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's suite. It's Scott Thompson from CHML Radio. Okay, uh, just a moment. Somebody on the phone, a radio station, they wanted to be connected to a PM suite of Prime Minister. What radio station are you? 900 CHML Radio in Hamilton. 900 CHML. Well, we're not allowed to connect you there, sir. Sorry. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to connect me? Yeah, I just spoke with the director of front office. We're not allowed to connect anybody there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. Sorry? 
I'm so sorry. I can't do it. Do you know if he was singing at the piano bar last night? That I have no idea. I wasn't here, so I, I don't know, sir. Do you know if uh, he's planning to do a sing-song tonight? I don't know anything ab about that thing. So I don't know who to connect you to. Okay. help you with it. Okay? Sorry. All right. Well, thank you very much for the time. Yeah. Sorry. Bye-bye. Hello? Hello? Hey, 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 hello? Okay, you can only try, right? Is that music actually from the piano bar? No, no, it's not. It's, it's, it, I'm sorry, it's not that. It's just wishful thinking on my part. That's all it is. All right. Uh, nonetheless, we are going to keep trying because you demand that. Uh, huh? Well, some do. So uh, we'll do that over the course of the afternoon. Also, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia coming up. And, and, and you know, there's still one more day left. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up, so feel free to jump into the poll. Do you think that uh, the Prime Minister will come on my show and uh, give me an interview, too? Uh, again, yes, no, talk, text, 905-645-3221. It's all you got to do. You don't need a big explanation, although some, some of your reasoning is quite humorous. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a, a little later on. And and we will also uh, talk to Rick Zamperin, not necessarily about the Prime Minister, but certainly on the Ticats. That's all coming up. We got another jam-packed show uh, talking about health care, and we're coming up to the anniversary of the convoy protest. Speaking of, uh, you know... The big news, other than, of course, the Prime Minister is here. And really, when you think about it, we are now the epicenter of the universe. Certainly, at least Canada. Wouldn't you? Th and, and, and at least this end of the lake. Come on. Uh, because of obviously the Prime Minister's here and, and the Cabinet and everything. And now massive news here uh, from the Ticats, which uh, is pretty exciting and has a lot of people uh, really excited. Uh, big news for Hamilton and the Ticats. Bo Levi Mitchell has signed with the team. Uh, Zamperin headed to the presser uh, following Good Morning Hamilton and joins us now. Boy, it's been a busy couple of days for you, hasn't it, Rick? It has been busy, but uh, listen, if you're not busy, I'm not sure what you are. And I love uh, I love covering these big events. You know, chatting with the Prime Minister this morning was exciting. Uh, getting this breaking news from Ticats land was ultra exciting as well. It's it's a good couple of days for Hamilton, that's for sure. So uh, let's start with the Prime Minister, and we'll, and we'll get to the Ticats stuff. But so how was it? What was it like? It sounded all very cordial. Um, what was your what do you, what's your takeaway from the experience? Yeah, you know, I, I think we had a, a nice conversation. I don't think uh, he was, uh, you know, lured into anything too controversial. Uh, you know, there are some controversies that uh, this government and uh, this regime has dealt with over the years. But I really wanted to get his sense on, you know, the big topics of the day. Healthcare being, you know, among them. We're in a healthcare crisis, as we know. Ontario is trying something a little bit different that some people like and some people don't. And I wanted to get uh, the PM's view on, you know, what Doug Ford is doing in terms of this new healthcare uh, plan. We also touched on, of course, the cost of living. As we know, food prices, gas prices, house prices, rental rates. Uh, we're paying more and more and more for everything these days. Hmm. And, you know, I wanted to know what the plan is. And while he didn't really answer the question, you got the sense that, you know, at least he's concentrated on doing something. What that something is remains to be seen. I don't think it's going to be tax cuts. I don't think it's going to be any sort of, you know, plan that's going to put a lot of money in our jeans. But at the end of the day, they're hopefully going to make it a priority. And that's one of the big um, uh, uh, items up for discussion at this cabinet retreat. And, you know, the other thing that I think is just really uh, interesting as, you know, a, a political junkie is this supply and confidence deal with the NDP, whether you want to call mm. it a coalition or whatever. These two entities are moving this uh, country forward with some of the push and pull that goes with this coalition type of, uh, of government. So, uh, you know, wanted to pick the prime minister's brain on that, uh, you know, otherwise got to chat a little bit about hockey as well. I know he's a big Montreal Canadiens fan. So uh, we had a nice discussion. You can find it on the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts as well. All right. And um, on the note of election, he was saying uh, the other day he doesn't want to plunge Canada into an election uh, at this point. Is there any reason, I, you know, at the end of the day, NDP, I think, has got the best situation they could ask for. Is there any reason to think that this is going to happen in any uh, short period of time? It doesn't look like it. 
Gee, yeah, I don't I don't think so. I don't think the NDP wants an election right now. I think they want to fill up the coffers a little bit more. And I think the longer they wait, uh, you know, you kind of take a little bit of the steam out of Pierre Poiliev, who still has some work to do to prove, you know, what kind of politician or or what kind of leader yeah. really of this country uh, he can do. And that's a benefit to him as well. But from the prime minister's standpoint, geez, if you call it an election now, this would be the fourth since 2015. I think it was the first time he was elected. Exactly, yeah, he wins, yeah. you know, that's four straight election wins. Only one other prime minister has done that. That's a big feather in his cap. But I think he's writing the, you know, reading the tea leaves to think, well, there's a lot of stuff that is going on, as I like to say. And uh, it's not all in his favor. So I think as the leader of this party right now, who can potentially be in power until 2025, unless the NDP says, you know, we're going to rip that rug from under you. uh, I think at the end of the day, I don't, I really don't get the sense that the prime minister wants to, uh, you know, flip the switch on another election run at this point. All right. And again, more on the website and the podcast at 900CHML.com. Let's talk about uh, the Cats. How big a deal is this? This is this is big. This is monument. This is about as big as you can get. Uh, you know, when was the last time that the Tiger Cats signed a quarterback of this ilk, of mm. this uh, talent, and of, um, you know, a career that is already sending him to the Hall of Fame. You know, you, the, the name Casey Printers might spring into action, but that was a little bit different. That was a guy who, yeah, had a lot of talent and had a, a great couple of years at the BC Lions, tried his hand in the NFL and didn't work out. And then again, did not work out for the Tiger Cats. Really the last guy that we can point to that is Bo Levi Mitchell-like who came to Hamilton with much praise and much fanfare and fans were thinking well maybe this is the guy that can lead us to a great cup is a Tiger Cats legend in Danny McManus here's a guy that came in with Ron Lancaster mm. in 98 uh, you know Darren Flutie comes on board it's full steam ahead they get to the great cup they end up losing but the, the next year 1999 they win it all and that's really the last time around the Cats have won a great cup championship so for Bo Levi knowing that the Grey Cup is in Hamilton this year. The city of Hamilton is going to be the host. They still have a good enough roster to get and win that game. Yes, a lot of pieces have to fall into place. Yeah, they have to win the big games. But at the end of the day, here is a future Hall of Fame quarterback who still, in his mind, is a lot left to prove who he says he's 100% healthy and has been the healthiest he's been since, well, probably four, five, six years ago. Uh, this is a monumental move for this Ticats organization. Uh, it is a earth shaker for the CFL's East Division, and the rest of the CFL has taken notice. I mean, they did in November when the Ticats traded for his rights. Now they're saying, holy smoke, this Ticats team is that much better. It really seems like it's all in this year. All <laughs> Everything's on the table. This is the first of what I suspect is a few pieces. Yeah, they have some free agents that they want to re-sign, like Tim White. But I get the sense that you know this team's been close a few times in the Grey Cup final, has not gotten the job done. You know, even two seasons ago and, and four years ago, pre-pandemic, getting the Grey Cup, just not being able to win. This is one of I think a multitude of pieces that are going to be put in place uh, on the field, especially maybe some stuff off the field as well, with uh, you know some schemes and different. Uh, uh, you know, uh, levels of excitement on the field in terms of what they're going to do offensively and defensively. This is a huge building block for a franchise who has needed a franchise quarterback for a long time. Bo Levi Mitchell, a tie cat. Rick Zamprin here, host of Good Morning Hamilton, host of the fifth quarter as well. And don't forget the podcast, 900CHML.com for the latest interview with the Prime Minister. Rick, get some sleep. Thanks so much. Be well. <laughs> All right. You take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might have heard if you're uh, listening to the show last week, a little uh, under the weather because I tested positive for COVID over the weekend. Uh, That is all negative and um, I feel absolutely great now. So, um, uh, you know, Tuesday, Friday, Tuesday to Friday, I would say. uh, First two days, maybe a little like the flu. Then after that kind of turned into a cold. So uh, there you are. I'm also uh, fully vaccinated, boosted all that other stuff, which I highly recommend, which I'm sure uh, helps keep a lot of this at bay. However, uh, enough about me. Uh, as we know, the mandates for vaccination have been dropped. However, hospitals in Ontario, and I understand the province has let the hospitals do their own thing on this because uh, they could mandate and say, no, it's not valid anymore. Um, but the Hus- Ontario Hospital Association still demands that its workers are vaccinated. And as a result of that, there's a lot of workers that were let go because they way back when 
when didn't want to get vaccinated at a different time during this global pandemic. Now, of course, we are where we are and uh, pretty safe to say there's an awful lot of us who have been infected in some form. Natural immunity has come up. Uh, these mandates have been relaxed, uh, except in situations like this. Is that smart considering where we are, A, in the pandemic, where we are, B, with the uh, the uh, the situation in regard to Hamilton or sorry, hospital shortages and lack of staff and such. And basically where I'm going here is there's a group of hospital workers who were let go at the beginning of the pandemic for not following uh, the mandatory vaccination. Now that all of that stuff has subsided, with the exception of the OHA, should we use these people, bring them back to work because we've obviously got a shortage or is it not worth it? Uh, vaccine, you know, you want to be in a healthcare setting, man, you got to be up to date on all this stuff. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor of school of occupational and public health, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on all of this, uh, Thomas, obviously we're in a different spot than we were in the first, second, third or whatever waves. I don't even know what wave we're on now. Um, and, and a lot of these mandates have been dropped. What about in a hospital setting, though? Um, maybe some people are saying, hey, you know what? That's just too close to the fire. What, what are your thoughts on all of this? Have, have where we are in the pandemic at this point and vaccination among hops, uh, hospital staff? Yeah, it's it's definitely a very tricky sort of situation. And, and I suppose, you know, I, I sort of think of it in terms of risk and what is the risk to the patients of an unvaccinated uh, staff member, but also what's the risk to other staff by working with an unvaccinated uh, staff member. And I think, you know, as you said before, even if someone isn't uh, hasn't been vaccinated or aren't fully vaccinated, uh, there's, they're going to have some level of immunity because of, you know, expo, you know, past exposure. They might have had had COVID, so so there is going to be a level of, of uh, you know, immunity that that throughout the community that we have already. And so, so whereas the you know vaccination is 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 a way to sort of artificially you know create that and enhance that. So. Overall, it's it's quite tricky from the perspective that if you also think about it in terms of uh, you know influenza and uh, and the sort of annual annual flu flu uh, vaccinations, uh, you know if if a workplace is uh, requiring workers to have have a influenza vaccine, then uh, you know it, the logic is that you know this is quite similar, and so mm-hmm. so they would you know be you know sort of there's an argument to keep, you know, have have the COVID vaccine, but but if the workplace didn't require influ- annual influ- influenza vaccinations, then then I don't think they the the you know the logic would be well if they haven't if they don't require that why would they require require COVID and COVID vaccine? So so I suppose where I'm coming from is that uh, work you know. Uh, the hospitals are are employers, and they they have to you know provide a safe workplace under infection control guidelines. In, in, in say in Ontario and across uh, you know across the other provinces as well, and throughout North America, uh, there are healthcare providers. Uh, healthcare workers are supposed to be vaccinated. There there is a list of uh, ones that are. Uh, that are recommended and, and say, you know, they should be vaccinated for, including influenza. Whereas we know that uh, not all hospitals require their their uh, staff who are have patient contact to be uh, vaccinated for influenza. So, so I suppose I'm coming back to it. It is tricky, but if you know, if 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 the hospital doesn't require vaccination for influenza, well, I don't know if they've got a strong case. To still require it for COVID, so but if they do, then then you know that that the argument would be that you know that they're in this in the same same situation because of the way the way the the uh, viruses are transmitted. So that's a sort of a long sort of drawn out answer to say it's it's pretty tricky. So so um, and just clarify this, Tom. So um, are all healthcare workers required? They're they're required to have a series of, of shots, vaccinations per se. They're not necessarily required to have the flu shot. Is that accurate? As far as I'm aware, yeah. The uh, the infection control uh, guidelines that uh, Public Health Ontario uh, mm-hmm. put out and that uh, the 
healthcare settings uh, are supposed to use as guidance. They they say that uh, influenza, uh, hepatitis B, you know, uh, tetanus, right. diphtheria, all of those are are. are should be should be vaccinated for plus anything else under specific situations. Whereas, despite that, it's still up to you know specific hospitals whether or not they you know what of the, that list that they do enforce. And and the the data that they show here in the uh, the guidelines is about fifty percent or so of healthcare workers in Ontario uh, are vaccinated for influenza on an wow. ongoing basis. So so you know if that's the case, then you know. I don't know. Like again, mm. it's that also that aspect of balancing. What's the risk to the to patients if you've got you know lack of staff, overworked staff, uh, you know, and and your that stress on the system. So obviously, it, it's you know it, it's balancing multiple risks uh, and which which is which is the best best way to handle that. And obviously, you know, I, you know, recommend and and I. Th- Personally, I think you know uh, the healthcare workers should be uh, vaccinated uh, mm-hmm. for for COVID, along with influenza and and the the range of others, because th- you know the, there is a you know it's about the standard of care that someone who has direct patient contact is able to provide, and 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 in in, in and from a professional perspective, they have a like a duty of care to their patients. So, so partly it's you know what role are the the staff playing? You know if they've got a direct patient uh, contact role then then definitely you know it, it the, the the overall uh, sort of current feeling and and guidelines and and whatever is that they should be vaccinated for for this you know the influenza covid a whole range of things but it's it's still getting down to the actual in individual employers on on mm. what they're uh, wanting to enforce so um, obviously, we know the scenario here and the shortage and such. Are there enough that we're talking about? Are these numbers big enough that warrant bringing these people back in simply because of the shortage? Or are we talking about a very minimal amount, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I, I think the from from what I've what I've seen that the vast vast majority of uh, healthcare workers are. Uh, uh, vaccinated for for COVID, so so you yeah. are you know talking a, a small small proportion of the the broader workforce. However, having said that, we know that the the uh, the, the workforce is under you know increase ongoing stress in terms yeah. of uh, you know and, and so you know any any that you can get into the system is is better than than not having them. So so it, it's re- very much a, a very tricky balancing act at the moment. Thomas Tankate with us, Professor of School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Hospital workers that were let go because they weren't vaccinated, should they bring them back? Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ottawa preparing for the anniversary of last year's convoy protests and whatever that brings. I guess the 28th is the uh, anniversary of that. We really haven't heard much about this or, uh, you know, anything that's sort of been organized is kind of, uh, you know, uh, faltered or fluttered away. Uh, however, we are hearing about the or from the Ottawa Police Service and how uh, and what they have learned from the first uh, incarnation of this and how they are certainly more prepared are hopefully more repair, uh, prepared than they were uh, at this time last year. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired Deputy Chief uh, Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network, and is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for the invite. So is there any way to, or is there any information that suggests that um, people are coming back to Ottawa in the next week or so to, to do a, a 2.0 version of this? Yeah, certainly what I'm seeing is that uh, I, I do expect some level of uh, protest. I don't think it's going to be near what it was last year. Um, certainly, uh, Ottawa Police and uh, the other agencies are not projecting that uh, 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 publicly that that might happen. So I do think there's going to be something, but I think it's going to be fairly subdued so far from what, what I'm seeing. So what do you think has been learned from last year and a different uh, uh, police chief and a, a different uh, upper echelon from what I'm understanding? It, it seems more this is less about a convoy and more about that the Ottawa Police Service is now prepared. 
Yeah, I would, I would certainly hope so. And I, I do think that they will learn from the lessons from last year. Um, I could see that uh, they're not going to let people get established down around the uh, the parliament buildings and whatnot. I could see that uh, they're certainly going to be uh, intelligence informed as to what they're doing and trust in their intelligence that uh, if it starts saying that this thing's going to get larger than it is. And I'm certain that they're going to have a lot of uh, people just standing in the, in the wings, uh, maybe unseen, but prepared to act if, uh, if this starts to set up like last year. Uh, we remember from the testimony we heard uh, in regard to uh, the calling of the Emergencies Act uh, that despite information coming in, it just it wasn't getting to the right sources or or when the you know, the chief got it, uh, kind of sort of downplayed it all and such. And one of the other issues were just other services and the jurisdictional issues and such. Um, we are hearing from Ottawa Police Service, but do we are, are you confident that these align with the other police services? whether it's the OPP, the RCMP, or, or the parliamentary police, which was a, a weak spot as well during this. I don't, I don't have any firsthand knowledge as to what exactly they're doing amongst themselves, but I would certainly hope that they've, uh, there's a lessons learned here and they need to work collaboratively. It seemed like there was a lot of silos going on uh, during this last operation, and I hope that they're breaking those down and actually working together to, uh, for a proper response. Uh, the convoy is one thing, but the uh, U.S. President Biden announced that uh, they he is going to make a trip up to uh, Ottawa as well. How important is it that uh, it certainly appears that the city of Ottawa, the town of Ottawa, and or, and the police uh, service have a handle on this, considering uh, there's a big presidential visit on the way? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Biden is obviously one of the uh, is the leading figure probably in the world, uh, and his security entourage would be very impressive. Ottawa is, uh, is very accustomed to hosting uh, uh, these dignitaries. I don't see any foreseen issues, but you're quite right. Does it Ottawa wants to get this right to ensure that they don't have any uh, issues uh, with uh, President Biden coming to visit? So I guess the best plan for Ottawa Police Service, or what, from what we're hearing so far, is people just will not be allowed to congregate. Vehicles will not be allowed to be uh, brought into certain areas of the downtown. Yeah, that's uh, that's the main lesson learned from last time, is that uh, don't allow them to get a foothold in the downtown as such as they did last time. And uh, they're going to keep them out of that area. Certainly it doesn't... Uh, it still has issues as far as where they might congregate further out, but they're not, certainly not going to let them get a foothold in the downtown of the nation's capital like they did last year. Is there any intelligence, Sean, regarding numbers and all of this? Because we heard that there was going to be a, a second anniversary, then there wasn't, and then it kind of all fell apart. Is there any real strong um, uh, evidence or intelligence that suggests that there's a group of people? We remember before they were virtually coming in from all directions. Do you, do you get that same sense, Sean? Uh, no, I don't. And I'm only reading the public information that you're yeah. seeing as well. But uh, I don't see any uh, indications that there's going to be large numbers coming from across the country or from the states and whatnot. Um, I think this is going to be a subdued event. And it, just like you pointed out, it sounds like the 2.0 protest has really fizzled and they seem to be rather disorganized on the protester side. Sean Sparling with us, retired Deputy Chief, Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network, commenting uh, Ottawa Police Service holding a newser earlier on this week, talking about how they are prepared uh, for the convoy anniversary if people do decide to come and protest in Ottawa. Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. As you well aware know, we are in the center of the universe right now. Uh, if you look up center of the universe, you will find Hamilton uh, because the prime minister and the entourage are all here. And uh, the whole, well, okay, Canada is all focused on uh, what is going on and the news that is coming out uh, of Hamilton in regard to the prime minister. And as you know, uh, we're still madly searching for that elusive interview, uh, you know, because it's just what we do. Uh, so we found ourselves perhaps more chasing the prime minister than getting out ahead of him and uh, so uh, you know as you remember yesterday he was uh, running around lock street along with mp philomena tassi and went into the burnt tongue got some soup there and such so let's find out more about that and, and what it's like to make soup for the pm uh natasha sokolowski is with us operations manager uh, manager at the burnt tongue and with us now natasha thank you for your time i hope you're doing well Hello, thank you so much for having me on the show today. It is great to represent the burnt tongue. So, I'm like, let's be here. 
Uh, and first of all, I want to say this right out of the box. As a huge supporter of Soup Fest, the Burnt Tongue yeah. Soup has always done extremely well, if not taking it all at uh, at Soup Fest over the years. So, yes, if you have a- never been to Burnt Tongue, you got to get down there and uh, and check it out. It is it is something. And clearly, the Prime Minister has heard about this. So, how did you first find out, Natasha? The Prime Minister was coming in to pay you a visit. So I actually got the call Sunday night. I'm relaxing at home. I receive um, a call that I have no idea who it was. I was like, oh, should I pick it up? Should I not? So I picked it up, and it was Philomena Tassi. Uh, And she let me know that um, Justin Trudeau is uh, in Hamilton with the cabinet, and she recommended us um, for lunch that day. Uh, because she is also a local longtime supporter of Burnt Tongue. So, um, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought it, I thought it would be great. So what did he eat? And, and, and like, did he just pick some from something from the menu? What, how did this all come about? Did you make something special for him? So he came in and he ordered just like a regular customer would. Um, I led him towards our creamy tomato and tortellini topped with granite padano and basil pesto because oh, it's one of our best sellers and it's one of the most comforting soups that, you know, it reminds you of sort of your childhood when you're at home, your mom's making tomato soup with a nice grilled cheese. So he yeah. got that. He got a small with a side of carrot sticks and he also indulged in a deluxe burger with cheese. Very nice. So uh, did he pay or did staff pay? How, I mean, his staff pay. How did that all work? You know, you know. He, paid, he paid by uh, debit, I believe. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah, all right. So Philomena Tassi also got lunch as well. It was really great uh, meeting her. She was wonderful. And what did she have since we're asking? Uh, so Philomena actually took my recommendation again. She got a small creamy tomato tortellini and a French onion grilled cheese, which pairs beautifully. Nice. That is nice. I'm getting hungry just listening to that. So uh, did they eat there? Or did they just take out and run? Um, so everything happened pretty quickly. Um, they came in with quite a large entourage. So that was uh, sort of a, a unique experience in itself. But they got uh, everything to go. So, uh, obviously, lots of security and such. Did anybody else get anything? Did, you know, 22 orders of soup here. I mean, yeah, I know, are- right? No, unfortunately, they were the only ones. But, but like you said, there was quite a bit entourage. So it was pretty exciting for the staff. And just the whole experience was, uh, was great. So did you let the staff know that this was happening ahead of time or was it a surprise um, for them? So we let them know the day of because we didn't want to yeah. um, leak any information just because of security reasons. Sure, absolutely. So did uh, he take pics with the staff, any of that sort of thing? Yep, he took some pictures um, and uh, we actually got featured on his Twitter and his Instagram page as well. So what does it mean, other than getting lots of great picks, when somebody of, of such stature comes into your store? I mean, obviously, especially on social, especially on social media, this has just got to do gangbusters for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was definitely a lot of exposure. But you know what? We, we welcome anyone from Justin Trudeau to the average Joe. We are here to provide comforting and nourishing meals for all. So, um, like, we welcome everyone. So it was just a great opportunity um, and very exciting for us. So what about other customers that happened to be at the store, uh, in the store at the time, that perhaps didn't know what was going on? What was the reaction to the other ones? Yeah, they were kind of shocked. And um, Justin Trudeau, he went around to the customers that were dining in, you know, introduced himself, had a a, a quick chit-chat. But it was very, very casual. Uh, But there was definitely a lot of hustle and bustle on the street that day. Okay, so for those that haven't been into the burnt tongue yet, and I'm sure more are on the way, talk a little bit about the soups. What are some of the big sellers you've got? Sure. So we specialize in soup. We also do burgers and fries at our Cannon and Lock location, and we do uh, sandwiches and salads as well. So definitely, like I mentioned, creamy tomato and tortellini is a huge seller. We also do a great roasted garlic potato leek. So right now we're changing our soups seasonally. So we're still in our winter menu, but come March, we're going to be full swing right into our spring menu. Tomato tortellini will stay, and then we'll change up our soups accordingly. Um, so that's the great thing about the burnt tongue is, you know, we went from, we used to do our soups every day. We would have different soups every day. Yeah. And now with four locations of expansion, 
we just can't we can't do yeah. things like that. We have to make it more consistent for customers and production wise. So we're G- really kind of focusing on our on our our really good soups, making them better, um, and then also we want to you know make things interesting and bring in sort of things like a winter pozole or an Ethiopian lentil stew, just so, you know, um, we can flex our culinary skill and also make things interesting. Wow. Who's hungry? Um, so, and Soup Fest this year, what do you got on the docket for that? Yeah. Or can you tell us yet? Soup Fest is coming Tuesday, February 28th. Um, again, Living Rock puts on um, this festival every year. Yeah. All proceeds go towards Living Rock for at-risk youth. Um, so we are doing a butternut squash, corn and coconut with a corn salsa. Man, that sounds amazing, and yeah. I cannot wait to sample that. All right, yeah, Natasha, thank, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with the burnt tongue. Clearly, uh, uh, obviously a, a favorite, and uh, all the best at Soup Fest this year, too. We'll see you there. Thank you. We appreciate the support and love always. All the best. Natasha, uh, Natasha Sokolowski with us, operations manager at the Burnt Tongue. Uh, the prime minister stopping by there yesterday along with MP Philomena Tassi, uh, for some soup. And you can find out what they're doing. You can visit the Burnt Tongue or, of course, coming up Feb 28th, uh, is Soup Fest and sample soups from everywhere. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Family and families, children and social development minister Karina Gould says the passport backlog that you've been experiencing is virtually eliminated. Look at that. I wonder, can they do that with healthcare? Can they fix it like healthcare that way? Hmm? Uh, processing times and passport offices are back to pre-pandemic levels, she says. The announcement, of course, comes at the big cabinet retreat here in the Hammer. Uh, since its peak in June 2022, after dedicating resources to ensure these Canadians receive their passports, approximately 98% of the backlog of applications has been processed, she said. Uh, and the backlog is virtually eliminated. So, uh, is that the case? Let's bring in, uh, Gabor Lukacs. President, Air Passenger Rights and Advocacy Group for Travelers, and is with us now. Gabor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So your thoughts on what you uh, or what we heard uh, come from the minister today and the issues or the situations in passports from what you're hearing, has this problem been rectified? Well, um, passport is not my expertise, actually, to be perfectly clear. Uh, I'm an expert on air passenger rights, and we have been hearing announcements about that as well. Minister of Transport, Omara Gabra, has been promising to uh, make changes to the air passenger rights legislation, and uh, that's really very, very much needed. Uh, do you think uh, many will look at this if you're traveling and say this is all the same kettle of fish, uh, whether it's luggage, whether it's passports, whether it's the airline ticket, whether it's the seat that you actually uh, sit in? Are you hearing anecdotally that these are uh, starting to ease up a little bit? Are you uh, are you are you still receiving, um, y- you know, uh, sad information from travelers regarding this? We are receiving a lot of sad information about airlines refusing to comply with the law and passengers having to resort to going to smoke claims court to just get what is owed to them. We have heard about recently even about the story of uh, how passengers' baggage is not being treated with respect of being, quote, donated to charity uh, without the passenger's permission. So uh, the situation in the airline passenger interface uh, is not improving at this time, unfortunately. All right, let's talk about the story you're referring to, and uh, I was quite stunned to see this, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but basically a person, passenger, lost their luggage, uh, nowhere to be found. I, I, from what I understand, they were compensated for that in some way, but then had uh, technology on the bag that they were able to trace it and did so to a storage unit which uncovered a whole swack of bags, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong Gabor, but the story is that uh, the airline thought it was just better to reimburse the passengers for all of this than go through the hassle of actually trying to sort it all out and basically bought these or compensated the, the passengers. No, uh, no for- that's incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. Okay, I'm sorry. Correct me on this. The, the passenger was uh, provided a small portion about a th- less than a third, as I understand, of the value of oh. the in their baggage. You see, under the Montreal Convention, which is the law governing baggage, normally, if there's a genuine loss of baggage, um, uh, the passenger uh, 
the airline's liability to passengers is limited to approximately $2,300 million. However, if the airline acts recklessly or uh, with willful misconduct, which is what happened here, uh, and fails to actually make a reasonable effort to reunite a passenger with the baggage, then there's an unlimited liability. So uh, the, the airlines really had to pay at the very least the full baggage's content and its value to uh, the passenger. And even then, under the Montreal Convention, the title, the ownership of the content does not change hmm. from the passenger to the airline. It's not like a car insurance where they uh, buy off the rack in exchange right. for some settlement. That's uh, exactly the way I was looking at this. I wasn't under. The, I, I thought they got full compensation for the bag, but obviously no. they only got a portion of that. So uh, then my next question is irrelevant. Then once they've done that, do they then become the owner or the possessor of the bag? No. But clearly that's no. not the case. No. No, they, 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 under the Montreal Convention, there's a liability for expenses incurred because just think about it. You go somewhere, your baggage is delayed for one week. You have to buy a suit and some yeah. pants, maybe a pair of shoes because you're going for a business meeting. Then ultimately your baggage arrives. The airline does not become the owner of your new pair of pants or suit or right. shoes or your old one just because they have to compensate you for these expenses. So it doesn't work the same way as with a car. The more troubling part, though, is that this is not an isolated incident. They have this uh, huge warehouse, apparently, full of items that the airline claims to be uh, have been abandoned or unclaimed. But... I would be quite surprised if it were true. What I'm hearing from the passenger is that when they looked in, they saw actually bags with baggage tags on them. Wow. So this, uh, it appears to be a stopgap for the the airlines and, and the bags rather than dealing with them. They hope the person will just take the compensation, figure it's been lost and move on. Um, are, are these bags actually going to charity? Is Do we know that? We don't know that for a fact. That's what the story is. Uh, yeah. What we do know is that their content may be sold. And uh, that's, again, a problem because somebody may be profiting from it. It's not clear who is really profiting. It's not clear whether it is the airline profiting or maybe some third-party company that may have some insiders helping them getting valuables out of the airline's warehouse to the private company. All these are issues that should be investigated by the police. We heard yesterday from a Toronto defense lawyer that uh, this does have potential criminal aspects of theft or possession of stolen goods. How? What is the airline's view on all of this? I mean, this is a pretty big deal, especially considering what people have been dealing with over the last uh, year or so. This is this is quite the black eye. How are they going to deal with this? The airline is trying to portray it as a kind of normal business as usual, that we just have this contract with this third party that we are handing over the baggage to them. And there's nothing exceptional. We are just following IATA rules of disposing baggage after 90 days that the owner is not found. What the airline is not disclosing is that there is no genuine effort to find the right. owner to begin with. And uh, the second point, which airlines love to forget, is the IATA does not make laws for Canada. Last time I checked, the sovereign is parliament and provincial legislature has some lawmaking powers in a number of areas. But IATA is simply the airline's uh, business association and whatever policies they make is for them, but it has no binding power in Canada. How much does this go on, Gabor? I mean, does this happen a lot? Uh, we are just trying to wrap our minds around what is going on. It, it's, in my 15 years of passenger rights advocacy, I've never heard of something so egregious and affront to common decency. Uh, we all understand that occasionally baggage owner cannot be located, but in many cases they can. The baggage has a height, a color, a brand. Uh, once the passenger provides that, it should be possible for the airline to find the owner. Kabar Lukacs with us, president of the Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, uh, talking about um, if you lose your luggage, you might want to check your charity. A charity, perhaps it's been donated. Uh, Gabor, thanks so much for the time and insight on all of this. Fascinating. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If you've been following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Ukraine calling for uh, German tanks that are throughout Europe. Only issue is uh, German has to okay all of that, where they've sold these tanks to people to be used for other purposes. It looks like Germany has given Poland the go-ahead. However, it appeared Poland was going to send them anyway. How many are there of these throughout Europe? Are other uh, nations going to jump on board? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So give us a bit of an update here. Uh, Germany has uh, agreed to let Poland uh, send these tanks. Is it just Poland that's going to send them at this time? There are many other countries that also have the Leopard 2 tanks, and they are likely to follow the example of Poland. But what is really crucial is that Germany should move on this as well. They have large reserves of tanks. They have at least uh, 300 of these tanks in storage that could be shipped. The sooner they do it, the better. I think the whole issue was very clearly stated in stark moral as well as practical terms by President Zelensky of Ukraine when he said, while you in the West are thinking about it, that is sending these tanks, the Russians are killing us. So there's extreme urgency. Every day that a decision is delayed uh, costs more lives in Ukraine. So Germany has agreed to let other allies use their German bot tanks, but not necessarily sending their own. Is that about to change with this increasing pressure? Why is Germany delaying this? Will they jump on board soon and, and really help? The government of Olaf Scholz at first seemed to have taken a dramatically different turn from the previous one in terms of helping Ukraine, of changing German policy, where it was basically demilitarizing rather than carrying its fair share of the defense of NATO. Uh, he called it a Zeitenwende, uh, promises of large-scale expenditures on military upgrades, on reaching the 2%. And then he really slowed down. And he seems to be someone who lives by the opinion polls. There is this kind of extreme timidity. One can understand caution, but timidity can be very harmful in international relations because Vladimir Putin takes advantage of that. He sees a vacuum. Now the pressure has increased on the outside and in uh, Germany itself. And there are some reports, uh, we don't know if this will prove to be correct, that the Biden administration, which hardly has done all it could and has been slow itself, it may be providing some M1 Abrams tanks, which it has been unwilling to send so far. And uh, even though publicly the Germans have denied us, privately we have considerable evidence to show that the Scholz government said to the Americans, we will not send our Leopard 2 tanks unless you send the Abrams. So who's going to go first? They may get cover from the Americans. The next couple of days will prove to be crucial to see if Ukraine gets the significant number of tanks it needs. Poland will only send over about 14 tanks. It's symbolically important, but substantively it's limited. Uh, Poland said it was going to do it either way. Uh, does this force uh, Germany's hands in order to, uh, because of that decision? It definitely increased pressure on Germany because it was both uh, an example and an act of defiance. Uh, when these kind of armaments are sold, there's usually a stipulation that you cannot mm. reassign them, right. that the exporting state is able to control that uh, for, for very good reasons. And so that to be really exceptional circumstances. And what Poland has been saying repeatedly, and there was this morning a very moving speech by the Polish prime minister, where he said, you know, these are a vast number of lives at stake. We have to do something. We cannot stand on the, on the sidelines. And even though Germany has increased the number of weapons that it has been sending to Ukraine, and in fact, the aid has been substantial, it is not nearly enough. You have to look at this in terms of what Ukraine needs. And you have to look at the Russian threat. 
the Russians are mobilizing more forces. They may be engaging in a new spring offensive that could be massive. Ukraine cannot match the numbers, but they have the morale. And if they have the quality of the armaments, they can do the job. It's as Britain said in the Second World War, give us the tools, we will do the job. What about reaction uh, from Russia uh, to these tanks being awarded? Because obviously they were trying to discourage this. Russia has bluffed its way, has drawn red lines repeatedly, none of which have meant very much. Uh, They have threatened nuclear retaliation. They are saying that they're going to burn these tanks. They've thrown everything they have at uh, Ukraine. They have moved, as I noted before on your show, from a war of aggression to a war of terror. And consequently, even though the West has to take every Russian threat seriously, especially a nuclear threat, and we have to employ our deterrence, we cannot really afford to have Russia dictate policy. Uh, no, uh, we've only got a few seconds left here, Arl. So what do you think the chances are that in, in, in a short period of time that Germany itself will actually send these tanks? How far are we from there? We are at the tipping point, and we will see in the next uh, few days or, or a week or two what, what will happen. The pressure on Schultz is, is really telling, and it seems that uh, after he runs out of every implausible excuse, he does the right thing. Hmm. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, Poland sending its German tanks to help Ukraine and Germany may follow. Arl, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I talked about this before. Uh, the takeover of Shaw by Rogers, Canada's federal court of appeal has rejected the Competition Bureau's request to block the takeover of Shaw by Rogers, a decision that removes one of the final hurdles standing in the way of this $20 billion merger from going ahead. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton, and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thanks, uh, Scott. Uh, is this the last hurdle? Is that it? What happens now? I think it is. Uh, and just to step back, just I think for the benefit of your of your listeners, because it's so complicated, all these alphabet soup agencies in Ottawa, believe me, and I've studied them from my career because my master's PhD are in public policy. Um, the, the competition tribunal is think of it as a a legal body. It's a quasi-judicial tribunal, independent of the government. And then you've got the Competition Bureau. Think of that as the the bureaucrats. And I don't mean that pejoratively. They're smart, educated people. They're really clever people. Okay. And the tribunal ruled that there wasn't a, a serious restriction of competition, so it could go ahead. The public servants in the bureau said, eh, we don't like this decision. We don't agree. So they have the right under the law to go to court. So they appealed the decision to the federal court. And that's a real court. <laughs> and the court turned them down. So they've lost twice. The competition bureau lost not once, but twice. And remember, there was thousands of, oh, my goodness, testimony and witnesses and expertise and documentation tabled before the tribunal. And and so now let me just very quickly, Scott, step back, bigger picture. We're a small country, even though we're very large geographically, 8,800 kilometers wide or thereabouts, but we're only 38 million people, smaller than the state of California with 40 or 41 million. And it looks like this country will not support for cannot economically support for telecom companies. That's why Shaw was selling out. They said, we're not big enough to pay the costs to stay in the game because the the capital costs are going up all the time to invest in the latest technologies and so forth. So they finally threw in the towel and they went to Rogers and said, look, we'll sell to you. And I understand why people are so upset about that, but, you know, it's the same thing with the airlines. You know, I don't think this this country can support four separate airlines. Uh, the mm. market's not big enough. And that's just a reality, no matter how much we yell and scream. So it looks like this is going to happen. What does it mean for consumers? Um, I, yes, I do think it's going to happen. And I think that what they did, whoever they is, I don't know if it was Rogers and Shaw or Rogers and Shaw, because the government 
uh, uh, bureaucrats or minister were whispering in their ear, but Shaw is selling off their their uh, cell phone arm, let's call it, their cell phone division to Videotron. Videotron's a big Quebec company. And so they're hiving it off. So Rogers is not going to be able to become even bigger on the cell phone side. So what are they getting? Well, Rogers is getting everything else but the cell phone. So that's, you know, the TV, the cable and and all that. So from the consumer's point of view, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You know, probably fees are going to go up. But I mean, my God, we already pay the highest fees in the world anyways. <laughs> what else is new? And again, it's because we're a huge country. The capital cost of stringing wire, because you string wire, whether it's called fiber optic cable or cable copper wire, you got to string it across the country. And we're 8,800 kilometers long. It's the same argument you and I have discussed or issue that you and I have discussed when we talk about uh, carbon decarbonization. And I said, we got to restring the whole grid. Well, the grid is 8,800 miles uh, kilometers across. The costs are staggering because we're so large and such a small population. So we don't, we have very low densities, people per square kilometer. Okay. So. Yes, the the fees will probably go up a bit, but I'm you know we're not yet sure because of course there's always the mitigating impact of the latest technologies reducing costs in some respects. So I don't think that they're going to go through the roof or anything like that. Remember, Rogers is in the fight of its life on the TV side with Bell because Bell has five, and full disclosure, I'm a I'm a Bell customer and I have five, and and Rogers is is fighting uh it's fighting for its life I think against Bell. So that's a separate fight going on. And then Videotron says that they're going to expand across the country to provide some cell phone competition to Rogers and Bell. So maybe that will, if they really do roll out across the country and compete, maybe we will see a a slight reduction in our cell phone fees yet to be seen. All right, Ian, I want to touch on this, and we really only have like about a minute left, but it's uh, Christia Freeland in Hamilton today uh, speaking, obviously, at the retreat. But last week at uh, Davos, where, you know, all of the elite meet to discuss the world issues yeah. and such. Yeah. And basically, it was, it was quoting an American, wasn't saying that this is how she feels, but uh, said to sort of give some pause to the line, uh, the middle class needs to take a pay cut. And I can play a clip of it for you if you haven't heard it. But what are your thoughts when you hear that? I mean... That just scares me, whether we're taking it out of context or not. Um, I would never, if I was a politician, and of course I'm not, (laughs) I would never use that kind of language. I mean, I think I know what she was getting at, and I'm not trying to uh, excuse her, okay? I I think it was a mistake to say that. If she had said the economy is too hot, it's it's it, there's too many dollars chasing too few goods and you know we got to drive up interest rates to cool down the economy uh, that's okay i think that's okay because that's that's a legitimate way of putting it but to say you know the middle class are just getting too much money it's almost like mr trudeau when he stood up during the uh the protests in ottawa the truckers uh convoy in ottawa uh and i was very critical of mr Trudeau at the time when he stood up in the house of commons and accused all the people who were protesting or supporting the protesters as being racist and homophobe and in other words, what he was saying is, if you disagree with me, Canadians, you're a racist. Yeah. Yeah. That's Hillary Clinton. That's, the, you know, you're a bunch of deplorables, you losers. You should never yeah. talk like that and attack or assault or insult the taxpayers of Canada, even if they disagree with you, Mr. Trudeau or Ms. Freeland. Uh, Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about the Shaw-Rogers deal and everything political. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. All right. The Prime Minister, obviously, in town. Hamilton is the center of the universe right now. Certainly the center of the universe when it comes to Canada. Uh, as all eyes focused on the cabinet retreat that is going on here and any announcements that are being made. Uh, we're about halfway through all of this. Let's bring in Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks. Uh, obviously drawing a lot of attention with what's going on. Uh, most of the newscasts, whatever we're seeing, uh, are originating in Hamilton because this is where the prime minister is uh, and such. Talk a little bit about this being here, why it's here, and how perhaps the NDP are feeling, um, knowing the liberals are getting all the attention here in Hamilton. 
Yeah, I thought it was the two beers a week guy. That was the reason everyone was looking at Hamilton. But uh, I mean, (laughs) uh, cabinet retreat is an annual thing where, you know, the cabinet meets in advance of the budget, especially, uh, and really gets briefed on what's going to be in the budget. And in other words, what the government's going to be selling uh, in the coming parliamentary session. I mean, they could do this in Ottawa, but I think they take this out uh, around the country. And, you know, similarly earlier with the uh, Liberal caucus, you know, they'll also take that retreat somewhere else uh, to get media coverage, essentially. Uh, and, you know, particularly for this government, a uh, as its chief electoral base, you know, it's important for them to be getting the, the local uh, media coverage that they'll be getting uh, around that area and uh, even pointing right to a number of seats in Hamilton where they may be a bit worried about what might happen in the next election. You know, you look at Hamilton and East Stony Creek where the Conservatives finished second last time out uh, and then uh, won uh, provincially. They must be worried about Chad Collins there, I would think. On Hamilton Mountain, given where the polls have gone with the Liberals down a little and the NDP up a little, uh, you know, that seat becomes probably much less tenable for them. So, you know, there's also a, a hyper-local aspect to this, which I think we've seen with announcements of investments at the airport uh, and investments in fetal alcohol syndrome programs at a, at a local social agency and a number of, you know, other such photo ops to to bolster the, the case for uh, Hamilton's local uh, liberal uh, MPs. Um, is this all about selling all of this domestically, or is this about connecting with Hamiltonians? My next question, a meeting with the, the mayor of Hamilton, Andrew Horbath, we understand that's happened. Uh, what would that discussion be like? Well, I mean, there's not a whole lot of places where uh, cities and the federal government meet, uh, because cities are in many ways creatures of the provinces. But on a number of files, like you know, delivering new units of social housing, uh, you know, certain aspects of the federal government's infrastructure programs and so forth, there is a need to to work also with cities. And so I think, you know, again, it's probably more at the level of photo ops <laughs> of being mm-hmm. seen with the, uh, for the cabinet being seen with local leaders. But it is an opportunity for the city, you know, to speak with the federal cabinet uh, without having to run around the province. And that's not something you get to do every day. So those relationships probably matter. You know, there's been some emphasis on uh, you know, the proximity of uh, Andrea Horvath, the mayor, with uh, the minister responsible for the Economic Development Ministry of Southern Ontario, Philomena Tassi, and how that might have some positive impacts in terms of funding down the road. Um, uh, our, uh, let me ask you a question that's that, that's that, that's separate from what is happening in Hamilton. Uh, obviously, it appears that the Prime Minister seems to be reaching out beyond where he's normally reached, uh, looking for support and, and looking for votes and such. Um, do you think uh, Canadians are concerned that this once left of center party has gone too far to the left, whether it's supporting the NDP or an agreement with the NDP, whatever it is you want to call it or such. Do you think Canadians are, are telling the prime minister, you, you know, you've, you've got to bring us back to center. Are you getting that feeling at all? Uh, I'm getting less that feeling than Canadians. Not really sure what this government stands for. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the, the government itself probably has a bit of the sense of what you're talking about because we see, more emphasis on economic development. And so we had, you know, Trudeau yep. at a car plant in Windsor talking about batteries, the linkage of, you know, the, the new electric cars, also with mining in the north with the rare minerals that go in them and so forth. So, uh, you know, there's been a bit more emphasis uh, on the economic development side. But I think generally a lot of Canadians look at this government and, and see a government that's more tied to images and making announcements and you know, a real concrete idea of what Canada needs to move forward. And and so part of that's probably the pandemic and uh, sidelining this government. But to the extent that there's an agenda, it seems to have been set in its agreement with the uh, NDP around things like uh, dental care. Um, and uh, for the rest, I don't know if Canadians really know what Trudeau wants or how he sees Canada could be better. And I, I think that's dangerous for a government that's been in place for seven years you know, which is naturally getting a bit long in the tooth and Canadians get impatient with a government that's been there too long. But without a fresh vision, uh, that impatience grows much quickly. 
Um, the prime minister was asked if uh, just before the visit here, if um, if we were heading towards an election, obviously, uh, Jagmeet Singh has been you know rattling the saber a little bit. Uh, he said Canadians don't want to be plunged into an election, which is kind of hard to take considering we were plunged into one during a global pandemic. Uh, and, and obviously, NDP are, are, are enjoying the most power that they've had in a while with with being, uh, you know, their agreement with this government. Do you anticipate any election at any time uh, this coming up this year, 2023? Well, I mean, no one foresaw the First World War just, you know, weeks before Good point. it happened. So, uh, but yeah, I don't really see it. I mean, I think there's some saber rattling on the part of Jagmeet Singh, who wants to show that he's not simply Trudeau, that, you know, he, he has his own vision, uh, you know, separate from a, a federal government that's maybe without a whole lot of vision. So, you know, I think there'll there'll be uh, continued attempts to to push on things like healthcare and so on. But uh, generally speaking, I think his strategy is to push on things that he knows are coming anyway, so he can take some credit for them when they arise. So for those reasons, you know, I don't see the government falling because the opposition parties uh, gang up against it. And I think from Trudeau's point of view, he's a bit chastened from what happened, uh, you know, just a year ago when he went to election um, and, you know, got the exact same result as the one before. So uh, I think it's unlikely uh, that we'll see an election in the coming year, but there's, you know, no uh, end to the potential folly of our politicians. But I don't see I don't see crises on the, the horizon that would really yeah. shake up the status quo. All right, I want to uh, play you a clip, Peter, and this is taken completely out of context. This is from Davos last week and such. The uh, Christy Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, speaking, talking about the, the middle class. She was qu- quoting an American who was saying, you know, the middle class needs to take a pay cut. It wasn't her idea. She was floating it out there. But listen carefully to what she says, and I want to hear your thoughts. Play the clip. And this is what he said when I talked to him about what's going on in the American middle class. We demand a higher paycheck than the rest of the world. So if you're going to demand 10 times the paycheck, you need to deliver 10 times the value. It sounds harsh, but maybe people in the middle class need to decide to take a pay cut. Again, not untrue if you're looking at the dynamics of the global economy, but politically and socially a very difficult thing. Uh, why even go there, Peter, especially when you're trying to sell uh, those, the middle class and those that are trying to join it? Why would you want to join it if they're taking a pay cut? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'd obviously have to see much more clearly what was being said in that situation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, for any politician to say that is highly damaging. And for someone who is thinking of making uh, a run uh, to replace uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, you can imagine that this will be uh, trotted out, you know, regardless of the specific context uh, of what was being said. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a difficult claim to make. Uh, I can't really think of any politician who would make the case that we should uh, ultimately uh, make ourselves less well off. But, you know, again, the context is important and I don't really yes. have it in, in the context of that clip. And I want to explain that that is from Davos. That has nothing to do with Hamilton or any of that. And we'll continue to follow up on that. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the PM in town. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank wrote in to say, you might have an opportunity for an interview with Justin tomorrow, Scott. He might be snowed in like the rest of us if the weather forecast turns out as predicted. (laughs) 